welcome to the second half of the first season of the Sano KNOW.org podcast. This is the place where we have been discussing everything drug related from policy, crime, research. We talk about what's going on on the streets, we talk about what's going on in the universities and the research areas, and uh, we talk to people with lived experience and we discuss ideas on how we can make things just a bit better. We receive funding for this podcast from the Canadian Research Initiative of Substance Misuse. You can check out the great work that they are doing at chrismprairies.ca. Please note that the views and opinions expressed in our podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Chrism or any of their members, and the views also do not necessarily represent the views of my employer or any organization that I'm associated with, and the same goes for our guests. A big shout-out to DJ Charlie Hustle. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for providing the excellent music that you've been hearing both on the intro and outro of our podcasts. Everybody that's listening right now, please hit the subscribe button. It helps. Also go to our Facebook page. Engage with us there if you've got questions, comments, uh, concerns, you've got new ideas, anything. Head, to the, head, head on to social media. Send us a tweet. Um, challenge us. Uh, we're all in this together. We're all trying to make this world just a little bit better. We're trying to find some solutions at work. So I hope you enjoy the second half of this season. I sure enjoyed making it. Well, if you've been paying any attention at all to the overdose crisis in our country, there's no doubt that you would have heard of this amazing organization that is out there advocating called Mom Stop the Harm. And today I have one of the founders with me, Leslie McBain. Leslie McBain, thank you very much for coming on to our podcast today. Oh, thanks for asking me, Matt. So, Leslie, why did you get this organization going? Myself and two other women, Petra Schultz and Lorna Thomas, uh, created Mum Stop the Harm after all three of us had lost our sons to drug harms. Our young sons, they were all... Uh, one was 24 and two of them were 25. After we could um, actually do anything, after our grief um, lifted a bit to the point where we could actually communicate with other people, yeah. we found each other and um, we were, I guess we, it's hard to remember actually, it's, it's almost uh, four years ago, but we, we, start, we met each other um, really on the phone. They live in Edmonton, I live in BC. Um, and we just decided we had to change the things that went wrong for our sons. Uh, so it was a gradual sort of organic um, evolving process till we got to a place where we had a name and we could uh, make, a, make a presence for ourselves on social media and, uh, you know, finally get a website and so on. All right. I'm, I'm sorry for your loss, uh, Leslie. Um, Thank you. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always in awe. As, I'm, as you know, uh, Maria is, is one of the directors of our organization, Say No, and she's also part of Mom Stop the Harm. And having the ability to turn that pain and grief into advocacy to make social change is, uh, is really honorable. And, and I don't know if I would have the strength to do that, but... I'm so glad that you, you, you and your friends are. Yeah, thank you. So when, when you lost your son, Leslie, what year was that in? It was uh, February 4th in 2014. He um, died from an overdose of a combination of prescription drugs, which included uh, 
at least two opioids and uh, a couple of other things. Uh, the combination actually stopped his heart rather than the actual, I mean, you can call it an overdose. Right. It wasn't an overdose in the sense that we think of it today, which is, you know, uh, toxic, toxic drug or just taking too much for your system. It was, it was actually the combination. Oh, a lethal combination of drugs that he did take. Yeah, he, he, he was able to access all those drugs through um, doctor shopping. You know, oh, he had, um, he'd had a prescription for oxycodone from his and my actually family, our family doctor from a back injury that was, in my opinion, and I'm not a doctor, but he certainly did not need oxycodone, um, but that's what happened. And he, he got very addicted to that drug. And then the doctor, realizing that Jordan was addicted, uh, got really angry and just cut him off of the drug. Oh, so no. Jordan, yeah, you know, and he was addicted. So he had powerful, amazing, ridiculous cravings for opioid. And so he just had to do what he had to do to, um, to get those drugs. And, that, and he, he was pretty successful with the walk-in clinics and so on. Right. Oh man, that's those knee-jerk reactions are, are often deadly. I mean, we, you understand that you made a mistake, you know, and maybe giving the person the wrong prescription in the beginning, but then the concept of, oh, so we'll just take it away and the problem's gone is, uh, is definitely a ridiculous approach that we, we see far too often. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, he, the doctor was honestly more ignorant than I was about addiction. He obviously, and it was, you're right, it was a knee-jerk reaction. He was angry, but I think he was angry at himself. Right. Um, and he, he didn't, unbelievably, he didn't understand um, what happens uh, with addiction. And it's still, it kind of still blows my mind to this day that that, uh, that was how it happened. He actually fired Jordan as a patient. I was in the room. I was, uh, I was at the appointment where... Jordan asked me to go because he knew the doctor was going to be upset. And he yeah. said, you know, he went to the doctor and said, I'm addicted. I need help. And the doctor just went off and he was really insulting and angry. And then the end, at the end of the day of that appointment, he just said, I don't want to see you again. Oh my goodness. So yeah, that, and you know, that, that's probably not, certainly not everybody's story, right. but it, it happens. And, and uh, yeah, so we were left on our own to, figure out what to do for, for Jordan for recovery. Right. Did you, did you, were you aware of, or did you know if Jordan struggled with addictions prior to um, the Oxycontin prescription? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Jordan was, uh, let's see, 20, 24, or early in his 24th year that he um, got that Oxy prescription. But before that, um, and the way it kind of went was, you know, briefly, it was in, in, say, middle school, around age 13, 14, he and his buddies were smoking pot and um, drinking out, you know, by the lake and yeah. things like that, that sort of the usual things that, while we weren't happy about it, his dad and I, we, and we did talk about it a lot, and yeah. I was always feeding him uh, information from the internet and so on, um, we couldn't really, you know, you can't lock a kid up right. for, for partying. The, uh, what sort of evolved was that the other kids over time 
sort of fell away from that kind of partying by by the end of high school, really. But Jordan, Jordan didn't. And he, by the time he was 19, he came to us and said, I need help. I, I'm addicted to cocaine and alcohol. Wow. So we got him into a, what was, what we now know is a very sketchy um, and disreputable recovery center. Um, spent a lot of money on that. And Jordan came away from it dissatisfied and and not recovered because he, he was only in there for about, I think about seven or eight of the 12 weeks. He was the 12 week stay that was supposed to happen. And he relapsed after that. Um, took There's sort of a black box time in there where I'm not too sure what was going on because he was not living. He was in Vancouver and we were not in Vancouver. And so, yeah, then he, then he, he seemed to sort of get it together, came back to the coast. Uh, well, we're, where we live, he started his own business, wow. seemed to be doing pretty well, and then uh, had the back injury. And then that's when the oxycodone happened. And oh, that was man. sort of the beginning of the real end. Yeah, it's... Um... I mean, I'm really sorry, Leslie. Your your son is is a victim of of kind of that oxycotton crisis that nobody in the country really knew what was happening. And I remember I was in the drug section at the time, and uh, we just started hearing about oxycotton and as soon as and the addictive properties that it really had. And then I was also working in there when the counterfeit. Um, pills started rolling out because again as the entire medical community and and the government as soon as they saw that the, the issues that oxy was was causing to our community they decided to end the patent for the company and then that allowed that allowed the organized crime market to open up and come in and step step up to the plate because there was suddenly all of these consumers that wanted this product that the government no longer allowed the the pharmaceutical co- pharmaceutical companies to fill and so then we saw yeah. all the knockoffs rolling in, and then that those those are still causing deaths to this day. So it's exactly, and oh. you just sort of pinpointed the whole dynamic of uh, the black market. Um, yeah. As you know, and as we all know, prohibition on alcohol back in the early part of the 20th century um, didn't work. It caused the black market. It caused deaths. It caused you know toxic product, um, all kinds of ills, and so the government said in its infinite wisdom, okay, that didn't work, so let's let's make alcohol legal again and regulated. Right. And it worked. Right. So uh, unfortunately, because of stigma and lots of other reasons, the government can't quite get there with um, with opioids. Right. Um, so we have this horrible black market of toxic drugs that's killing thousands of people. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's definitely a tough, a tough situation, and there's such a disconnect between uh, the medical community and you know the policymakers, and then what what actually happens on the street and to the, to each individual. Is there is there any common themes that have stood out in your mind um, amongst all your meetings with the Mom Stop the Harm, and and is there any common themes in the stories of their children that you've kind of been able to isolate? There's not one common one, but there's a few common stories and uh, one common theme is that the kids who died and the people not just kids because it's partners and adults um, but the people who have died have been using a loan that would be 
the biggest common theme. Um, another one is that kids uh, in particular were experimenting and got the toxic drugs uh, thinking it was like you said, like it was that it was oxy or it was cocaine or or some other drug. They certainly weren't going for fentanyl or uh, maybe they were going for heroin, but anyway, ended right. up with with a toxic drug. Um, so those, and then another theme is that the moms and dads, but of course we deal mostly and have mostly moms in our organization, um, tried everything they could do to save their child. So those those are some themes that are common and and uh, really heartbreaking. Yeah, they really are, and can really happen to any family. Yes. I mean, one of the, I mean, having a toxic drug supply could could easily happen to our to our kids, and I think that's where education is so important. And at no no time has it been more important for parents to talk to their teenagers um, or even preteens about drugs and about what what's out there and not not necessarily just preaching absence because we know that you know very like quite a few youths are going to take the risk and experiment with the drug so to let your kid know that we don't, we don't want you these are our family values we don't want you to do to use these substances but if you do choose to violate those principles mm -hmm. here's how to do it safely that's right yeah i i used to um, i haven't i've been really too busy in the last couple of years but i did speak in high schools for a year there and my theme kind of was was just what you said I would say um, you know if you're going to smoke marijuana or cannabis you know get it from your grandma's garden you know right. know your dealer in other words and and then uh, I had to sort of change my my uh, talk to don't even touch pills and powders and then I had to add on, but if you do, right. make sure you have naloxone, make sure you have somebody with you, et cetera, all the safety. And, you know, it, I hope it brings awareness. And I hope when we talk to kids and when we, talk, when we teach parents to talk to kids that it's, it's working in some way. It's hard to know, but we just it's, keep doing it. Yeah, it's, it's hard to know, but, I mean, I often say in my podcast based on, I mean, based on the survey data that we have available through Stats Canada, our teenagers today are making healthier decisions as a whole. It's just, it's just uh, detrimental because the, the, the youth and the people between the ages of 15 and 24 that are using, you know, using to, you know, choosing to use, they are using a supply that's a lot more dangerous, so the risks are a lot higher for those individuals. But as an entire population, yeah. you know, we are making healthier healthier choices today I believe than, than any at any time before I hope that's true and and it probably is it's um, again it comes down to the to the toxic supply right. of, of all drugs I mean as you well know fentanyl and carfentanyl have been found in just about everything uh, except pot and right. you know that's something I always have to point out because we we hear that on the news or we hear it on social media sometimes that you know oh this person died because they smoked pot laced with fentanyl. Well, yeah, that has yeah. never, never proven to be a true statement. So That's I don't, right. I don't like that scare tactic. But uh, every other drug that we can think of has been, has been laced with fentanyl. So it's it's Russian roulette. Right, and that's and that's it's so important. I'm glad you mentioned that. It's so important to give, uh, to give real information, especially to youth, because if we insult their intelligence and 
and they have access to more information than we do because they know how to use the internet better than we do. So as soon as right. as soon as as soon as we give them one little piece of false information and they search it up, they're like, well, and now everything else you say must be a lie as well, or or at least they don't trust what you have to say. And so it's so important that we give real information out and not just use these scare tactics that have been created by who knows where just to you know instill enough fear yeah. in our kids that they're going to stay on a desert island and not do any risky behavior whatsoever. Exactly. Um, and, and in fact, I always, I always think back and, and I say to people, you know, back in the day, our parents said to us, you know, don't drink. Well, of course we did. They said, don't smoke cigarettes. Okay. Of course we did. Right. Don't have sex. Well, why not? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Um, so, so when we, yeah, when we say don't or don't do this or don't do that, that's just a that's just a trigger to, totally. to go and give it a try. Um, and so I think that, um, in fact, when I did talk in high schools, I would have kids come up to me afterwards many times and say, thanks for giving us the real story, um, rather than, you know, some moralistic, um, ideological uh, yeah. bunch of words that they weren't, that they were going to reject, so. Yeah, a lot, yeah. Of, a lot of the presentations I, I do now to high schools, uh, the first thing out of my mouth is an apology because my profession's been lying to them for decades. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I get the same thing after kids. Well, thank you. Like, that's, that's, that coincides with the research I've done. And it's like, oh, wow, you guys are actually doing research on this drug stuff. That's good to see. Uh, that's you, really good. Yeah. Could you, could you tell me a little about, you, you talked about um, parents doing everything they can for their child as, as one of the themes um, in Mom Stop the Harm. Could you, could you give me a, a little bit more details on about what is that journey to recovery that families typically go through in Canada? Oh, yes. Um, typically, there are not enough services in any city in, across Canada. So if I were in the situation, well, I was in the situation in 2014, and not very much has changed. We have a lot more evidence-based information out there, but in terms of services, um, say if, uh, just go back and say, when I was trying to um, help Jordan get into recovery, as I mentioned, I, you know, we got him into a, a not good recovery center, so mm -hmm. um, that's a big risk for parents. Um, finding uh, an addictions doctor, a doctor that's skilled in, in the disease of addiction and able to prescribe uh, the right drugs for helping a per person through recovery, such as um, Suboxone and Methadone. Um, finding one is incredibly difficult because there just aren't very many. Um, so, and then, you know, you have to have a continuum of care for a person to uh, say it should go something like detox with with a lot of support and then medically assisted treatment after detox and then long term counseling and surveillance and, and and by surveillance I mean just you know connecting with a counselor connecting right. with services right. um, over the long haul and we know this is what's going to ultimately help especially a young person recover um, but we just don't have you know the the powers that be that every level of government hasn't rolled out the the funds or the um, willingness to fund uh, what we know that will work right so are most are most treatment centers in the country that families go to um, private or is it a, or is it the public ones or 
Um, I actually don't know what okay. the statistic on that is, but um, there are a lot of private ones. There's few subsidized ones. Uh, one of the things we're working uh, for, and I mean, I as as you may know, but I work also with the BC Centre on Substance Use. Right. And one of one of the um, areas in which we're working is to try and get uh, these the private uh, recovery homes and houses and centers get them regulated and and uh, you know have a lot of um, a lot of a lot of their activities have to be regulated and and rule bound and have professional yeah. uh, professional people who are who are um, attending to the to the so, patients and so on. So is there no regulation at all to open up a treatment center? Like, could I just could I just open one up? realistically tomorrow and, and offer any sort of programming yeah. I, I personally see fit? I'm not sure exactly what the regulation is right now, but I, and, and I don't know in, in Saskatchewan, but in BC, um, there is a licensing pro, a process, uh, but it's very sketchy and not, not nearly comprehensive enough. I see. Um, there isn't enough, enough um, uh, uh, potential for uh, the government regulators to go visit these houses and to, and these homes. So um, pretty much I've heard some horror stories uh, about places that are just basically, they're like a shelter, right. but they're charging a lot of money. They have a bed and they have, maybe they have group once or twice a week, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and they just aren't uh, designed or, or um, staffed with, with enough expertise to, to actually help people through. I see. Um, I know. I remember uh, at the <coughs> stimulus conference there, you had given a presentation um, on some of the things that that some of the research initiatives that you're doing with uh, the BC. Um, what, what? Sorry, what was the organization? Center. Yeah, yeah, it's B called BC. Yeah, BC Center on Substance Use, BCCSU. Okay, could you could you kind of give a little bit <coughs> of, of a recap on what it is you guys, some of the cool initiatives that you guys have rolled out through there. Well, one of the things I'm on the um, family engagement uh, part of the of the organization. It's it's a it's a think tank in the best sense of the word. Um, it, um, the BCCSU employs about 150 people who are uh, researchers and statisticians and um, teachers of. Uh, they have a, a program for doctors to be accredited in in addictions medicine. Oh, wow. um, so there's that whole whole thing is going on and it's it's really amazing and I invite everyone to check out the BCCSU website because the work being done is cutting edge really in the world. I mean, we're, it's certainly the best in Canada and, and internationally it's, the work is recognized as well. But um, the pod that I work on is family engagement. We have three areas that are not so, so research oriented, but uh, there's the family engagement, that's what I do. There's the um, the peers, that's people who use drugs and who are who are advocating for themselves and for better policies. And then there's the recovery uh, center, the recovery pod. So that's the pod um, led by um, Marshall Smith, who's one of my colleagues, uh, that is really working on you know getting the regulation of recovery centers. So uh, in the family engagement uh, committee that I work with, we have done. Uh, several things that I would mention, and one is we spent quite a long time 
um, surveying and meeting with a lot of families who'd been impacted by drugs one way or the other, whether they'd lost someone or whether they had a, a loved one still in active addiction, right. on what was working and what wasn't working. What were their priorities? What what was it that they needed most from the system? Interesting. Um, and we call that the close-to-home document. We distilled it into about eight, um, eight areas of... Uh, of need from yeah. from family, um, and that and that's a, a document that can be found online as well under the BCCSU, and it, it's helpful really to anybody in Canada who is interested in finding out what they you know what what needs right. you know maybe people don't even know what they okay, need yeah, let's, if they yeah, have let's, a loved let's one. Let's talk again about the gone too soon booklet. They right need from help, the so this is a, a helpful way to go. Yeah, so we we created and have printed and distributed um, a booklet called Gone Too Soon, which is, um, I always say it's the booklet I wish I had right after Jordan died. It's um, a handbook that helps people with things that they're going to have to deal with, such as a funeral and an obituary and the coroner and, and maybe the criminal justice system. Um, questions that they might have to answer and things they have to do. Um, it also helps people uh, identify and understand their emotions that might crop up over the months after a loved one dies. Um, it, it was really, it's really helpful and lovely. And we've actually had the uh, federal government um, express interest in um, printing and distributing uh, this across Canada in, in a better way. So I'm really excited about that. We've also, um, we also, and it's actually just in print, right, uh, just being printed now, have a guide called the Coping Kit, which is for families who have a loved one still with them and still in active addiction and, you know, what to expect and how to move through that that situation. So, so we've done some pretty good things and um, we're hoping for a wider rollout of these to help families. That's great. It, it always seems like in no matter what the situation arises when when people come together that are struggling through the same situation there's a lot of very important and relevant data that can be collected and used and and uh, support systems that can be put in place and it all it can't be done in isolation through individuals it always seems to come out of groups getting together and and you know sharing sharing their stories with one another yeah absolutely and and this was this was another initiative that that we've rolled out is called we call it stronger together and we in bc are taking um we call it the roadshow but it's called stronger together we we're going to different uh we got a grant actually to go to different communities in bc and uh hold a, a series of meetings and for instance um one would be for people who have lost someone and who are dealing with grief and this mm -hmm. is families Another is for families with, with a loved one still with them. Um, another is for indigenous communities that are hard impacted by, by drug use. Um, and also uh, one that uh, is to train people in, you know, sort of peer training for support groups. Yeah, and what you said is so true. Support groups and, and sharing stories is, is the most powerful healing tool there is. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, Leslie, when, when we talk about dealing with a child who's who's struggling with an addiction. Um, I know from my from my policing experience, obviously, that their lives, that individual's life can be quite chaotic, um, quite violent at times, 
and very unpredictable. Mm-hmm. What, what advice do you have for, for parents that might currently be struggling with that loved one that is very hard to love at, in the current moment or very hard to, you know, to accept? Yeah. What do you do in those cases or what advice do you have? I guess my, my main advice, and it, it sounds pretty idealistic, but it is, is really true. We, um, as Mom Stop the Harm, and I certainly as an in- individual, um, do not believe in letting our children hit bottom, hit rock bottom. That, that was old, bad advice. Uh, hitting rock bottom meant, you know, locking them out of the house, uh, not giving them any resources, not giving them any money, um, withdraw- really withdrawing love in a, in a sense. We know now that that is 100% counterproductive. What, what, a, what a kid needs most of all is, is the love and support and knowing that the family's there. But having said that, as you say, the behavior is extremely challenging and can be where, you know, the, the, kid or whoever it is, is, is stealing from us, um, you know, going into drawers and taking whatever is saleable. I mean, uh, just being rude, being sometimes, like you said, violent, although, although that's, that's um, pretty rare, but at the same time, people have to, you know, parents and families have to stay safe. Right. Uh, siblings and, and parents have to stay safe, so there has to be boundaries. Um, it, it's a difficult call, but we just say hold them as close as you can uh, within within the boundary of safety. Um, it's it's really <laughs> really the most difficult thing, and if you can get support from from uh, agencies in your community, and you know, if you can find a social worker, if you have any kind of um, centers for kids that for troubled kids that can give you support and help social workers and so on we just have to do everything we can to uh not let that kid slip through the crack right. the cracks and and uh keep them alive keeping them alive get an naloxone kit that's that's one big one make sure your kid has a naloxone kit right. we just have to do what works and forget our you know our stigma and our ideological Right. Beliefs that that aren't going to work. Right. So, so then, it, do you, do you, do you believe that it's important then for, um, you know, the addiction issue that your child may be struggling with not to be kept a secret from other family members? It, you know that that depends too on, on the other family members. I mean, if you've got little children, um, they're not going to understand. Um, but being open about you know, keeping the stress as, as low a level as possible may include talking about it on a certain level, appropriate level with, with younger children. Um, but yeah, if, if the family can be supportive in general to the, the loved one who's, who's struggling, that's uh, it's the biggest tool in the toolbox. Also, we, we always say too, if, if, the, if the loved one gets into a situation, whether it's jail or whether it's being in the ER in an overdose, um, or whatever the situation in a shelter or on the streets, um, family members need to work. It's the hardest job ever, but family members need to support, to be aware and to support that person at wherever they're at. And um, that is, like I say, that's one of the hardest jobs for a parent ever. Yeah, no doubt. I think it's also to point out important to point out that not just parents. I know uh, Tina 
who is part of our Say No organization. We did a podcast episode a, a while ago, and, and she talked about a, a turning moment in her life where she relapsed. She, she went back to a crack house, and she was inside this crack house and was looking around and just realized, like, I don't want to be here anymore. And so she sent a text message. She had a, she had a mentor at the time that I think was paid for by the province as just a support for her because of some of her cognitive issues she deals with. And she sent a text message to this worker. And there was no questions, no judgment. That worker's like, yep, I'm coming to get you. And came straight to the crack house, picked up, picked up Tina. Tina was high on crack, you know, took her out for a snack. They had a conversation. And it was just, she said that was a real pivotal turning point in her recovery was the fact that that individual was there that showed that love and support without judgment and, mm-hmm. and didn't let them go. So even professionals listening to this, I think, can learn something from what you said there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and another thing that um, we commonly say is that family is anyone who loves you. And it, it, it can point. be, you know, it can be your support yeah. worker. It can be other people um, on the street if that's where a person ends up. It right. can be family is anyone who cares and supports, cares for and supports you. And, and that's, that's a great story. And I, I just, I love to hear that. Stigma and judgment are the killers here. I mean, besides the toxic drug supply, but right. when a person can't get, the reason people take drugs or become addicted to drugs is is simply put is pain and right. that pain can be uh physical it could be emotional emotional it can be early trauma right. it can be poverty and and racism and all those things and those things are all in, in on some level they're pain and so the drugs mitigate pain so how can we take those pains away right. that's sort of the question so that person could have a chance to um, recover from addiction and to start on a new path it's all about yeah it's all about support and yeah keeping keeping people giving people what they need right so it's it seems like Leslie you I've seen you talk a few times and and I follow uh, mom stop the harm on social media and and talking with Marie um, you're, you're, as an organization, you all seem very forward-thinking, very, um, you know, you, it seems like you all support, you know, something like drug regulation versus prohibition. Have you, mm-hmm. al- have you always had those beliefs, or is this something that came out of all of a sudden you were, you were thrown right into the world of addiction and substance use and drugs that you started to look at it differently? Well... Um, that's a, that's a really good question because really where Petra and Lorna and I started was we knew, we knew what happened with our kids and we knew how we wished it could have been. And what that, so what that led us to was the word compassion. So I think one of our first, um, mandates and, and still is in our, in our, mission statement in our mandate is um, to advocate for compassionate policies for people who use drugs. And within that word, compassion is, is really where we all came from. Now, compassion obviously doesn't mean letting them hit rock bottom or letting them, uh, you know, being glad that they're in prison or in jail or whatever. It means let's do what's right and realize that inside that person that child or that loved one is still the person who was born this beautiful, you know, 100% innocent child and, and uh, find, uh, keeping, keeping that 
thought and then moving forward with evidence, uh, with um, all the evidence that we could gather and making sure that we're heading towards you know, the policy makers with, with, armed with evidence, armed with uh, what is right and what's, what's um, you know, what's humane. Uh, so we've always had that, had that uh, bent. And we're all also, I think the three of us were, are people who have always been uh, progressive in terms of our thinking and, and forward thinking. So I think it was just a really great uh, sort of synchronicity and, and uh, serendipity, if you like, that the three of us got together um, and we just headed in the direction. And it's been the right direction because people have responded really positively from from families who are struggling to families in grief to policymakers to you know every on every level uh people are responding to the way we've moved forward so i feel well i feel very proud of what we've done but i also feel like we've filled a niche that um was really needed yeah there's no doubt where does um i mean you talked about compassion and i know it must be hard for a lot of moms especially those who maybe didn't realize that their child was suffering before they died. Um, mm. And I'm getting this from um, a Facebook post you guys posted. Uh, I've seen you guys post in support of somebody who was charged with manslaughter for providing that tainted drug supply to, to someone who ended up yeah. dying. I mean, how does a mom not be like death to all drug dealers because they killed my child? Mm to let's support this drug dealer and and uh like where does how does that happen where does that come from that's i i'm i'm kind of chuckling to myself here and that is not a, a funny question but it is something that comes up over and over again and of course we are human beings and we we just you know if somebody in quotes kills our child we want to kill them you know that's kind of just human nature right. um but we've come to realize, and a lot of parents feel that way, a lot of families feel that way, and I'm not going to say they don't, and I'm not going to say they necessarily grow out of that with, with the information, but, right. um, and I totally understand that. But um, in, in terms of people who sell drugs, first of all, many of our kids did sell drugs to, to feed their own habit, to be able to feed their own habit, to right. be able to keep, keep drugs in their system. Um, and they they're victims of this system as well. So as you go up the chain of, of um, and you would know this way better than I, but of people who deal drugs, there are people who are doing it out of, out of necessity because they cannot access what they need in a safe, regulated way. Yeah. Um, they are forced into doing the only thing they can do, which is, is dealing drugs. They can't work. They can't, maybe they aren't homed. Uh, they have they they may be homeless. Right. Um, they have all kinds of challenges. So we try to. I don't like this idea of of people who de, who have dealt drugs on on certain smaller levels being, you know, incarcerated for ten years or fifteen years. They they hopefully did not know that their drugs were going to kill right. someone. When you get higher up in the chain then we, you know, it's kind of a different story, right, right. Um, as you know. And, and when you get to the top, top levels of the people who make these drugs 
available in any way, then 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 we're talking about gangs and we're talking about uh, different, Organized you know, it's crime. a different ball game. Right. Yeah. So I, I can't answer that except to say that if we did have a safe, regulated supply of opioids coming, you're regulated by the government and, and sanctioned by the government to people who are addicted, then um, largely the black market would disappear. Probably right. would never disappear entirely, but people wouldn't be dying like they are now. Yeah, my, my narrative, I, I talk to police officers um, often about and colleagues and friends and whatnot is like, I, I mean, at the end of the day, I love drug enforcement. Everybody knows that about me. I absolutely love drug investigations. They're fascinating. Um, they're, but at the same time, I'm also, I also believe in a regulated market and, um, and I'm, and I'm not for prohibition. So what gets frustrating is when police budgets are only equipped to tackle the very bottom end of the drug supply more often than not. And so oftentimes police are forced to, to investigate. I mean, it, when you put out a media release saying, hey, there was a drug trafficker caught with, you know, a few ounces of, of heroin or a few ounces of methamphetamine, and the community sees that and they're like, oh, that's great. The police are out there doing something. But the reality mm -hmm. is, is that's the absolute bottom of the of the supply chain, and though that person selling was probably a user themselves, and as someone like you just described there, whereas where right. the, the places where we need to be targeting, they're very expensive, they're very complex investigations, and we don't get to do them as often as we should. And so, with a with a regulated market, we would save so much money on police resources that we should be able to then shift our focus off of the bottom end of the drug supply to the top. And, and I think that, that that's where a balance could be, and I think that's what will, I mean, that's what we see even with the tobacco market. Um, you know, there's not police officers, there's not a massive amount of, of police resources going to the illicit um, supply of tobacco, but there are units in our country that investigate the illicit supply of tobacco because it does exist, but they have mm -hmm. the resources and the funding to be able to do those investigations properly. Wow, that that's interesting. Um, I I never really thought of it that way. Um, it resource-wise, whenever I hear on the news that um, governments are putting more resources into enforcement, I always think, like you said about what you do, which is you know what you you're um, funded to do, which is to you know kind of get the the lower end of of right. uh, the drug traffickers. But yeah, funding. Yeah, when when we increase funding, if it could go to what you're discussing, like the higher higher levels the, the kingpins and the people that you know yeah that's have the power yeah that makes perfect sense yeah there's no point really doing that necessarily unless we can actually start providing some support to the bottom end we like we need to take away the market right now there's just too yeah. many people that need it so it's a it's a complete waste of time <laughs> this is this battle yeah. that we're, that we're going through um, whenever i hear um that there's been a Honestly, this is how I think now, yeah. and I didn't used to think this way, but whenever <laughs> I hear that there's some giant drug bust and pounds of, you know, two pounds of fentanyl were found and all this other stuff, I, I immediately think of the of the people on the ground who are addicted who are not going to get the drugs they right. need. Right. I don't think, oh, good, they got, they got those guys. Um, right. It's a strange way to think, it but um, having seen my son go through withdrawals and n knowing the stories of many, many others who, who have, for one reason or another, whether it was by their own choice or whether it was by not being able to find the drugs they needed, get really sick, um, 
I know I know that end of of the spectrum. And people who are in withdrawal or who need the drug then do very desperate things, and that's right. where we see right. um, a lot of the crime that you see. Um, you see a lot of the crime and uh, a lot of the behavior that's just unacceptable in, right. in any community. Yeah, it's a t it's a tough situation, and the the only way that we can come up with solutions is if organizations stop working in isolation and instead we need to all come together. We all need to pick up a little piece of the puzzle, a little bit of our responsibility. You know, I often see the medical community. Um, you know, there's there's some great doctor advocates out there that you know they're often attacking the police, saying it needs to be decriminalized. And then you see police going back to the medical community, saying, "Well, you're not giving anything to replace it with." In the meantime, so get your profession on board with prescribing better. And then you see, you know, there's not enough housing you know, even available in our community. So it, it seems like everyone's kind of on their own little mission and we're not quite working together as well as we should be. So hopefully that Yeah, changes. I think that's true, but I also think it's it's slowly, slowly getting better. I always say yeah. it's like, like turning the Titanic. It's, it's, it's so slow that people are dying. You know, right. people are falling off the Titanic left and right. And um, it's, it's a matter, yeah, people who aren't homed, who are homeless, will never recover from their addiction. I mean, no. it, it's just a simple fact. Right. How are you going to recover when you don't have a roof over your yeah. head? Yeah, you have no stability. So, yeah, you yeah. just wonder, okay, how do we start? Where do we start? Um, right. It's just so massive of a problem that, and so complex. It really is. Um, every single person who is addicted uh, or dependent has a different story. Right. And like I said before, it can be it can be so many so many reasons why a person needs to self-medicate. We have to look at those reasons, and, and they're kind of global in a sense. They're, you know, it's the economy, and it's, like I say, it's, it's racism, and it's generational trauma, and all right. the, all the uh, factors that uh, make it. So we have to deal with people where they're at. You know, we always keep saying that, that, you know, if a person needs this, Let's try to give them that. If, right. it, if, they, need, if they need a home, if they need um, uh, uh, medically assisted treatment, which is Suboxone or, or Naltrexone or, or you know, um, Methadone, let's give them that. Uh, if they need homes, let's try to find, sh let's build more shelters, let's, let's build affordable or subsidized housing and so on. But it's a slow, it's a slow, slow go for getting right. that all together. Right. So where's so what are some of the goals and objectives currently that Mom Stop the Harm is working on? Um, what are, what's some of the visions that you have for that organization? Um, one thing we're we're doing a lot of right now, and we, we didn't anticipate this at certainly at the beginning when we created the organization, is we are working on support groups. So we have. Um, We've, we've got templates now and got ways for uh, peers or people who, you know, uh, not professionals, peer-led grief support, uh, support for people who are living with a loved one in, in active addiction. We have a, we're just creating now a sibling support group. Found that a lot of uh, families, the siblings need support and need each other to communicate with uh, as well. We have online online support, you know, closed yeah. groups, yeah, that's which are Huge. really uh, used and useful and, and just so uh, rich with compassion. Yeah. It just kind of just makes me 
choke up when I think about all the emotion and all the support that comes through that, just a closed Facebook page that we have. Uh, so there's that. We've got the, so support. But in, ter in terms of our, our activism and advocacy, we are uh, strongly strongly uh, advocating for decriminalization of people who use drugs. Right. That um, That's a misunderstood phrase, and you may have talked about that before on your podcasts um, where uh, people who use drugs, possess and use drugs for a personal use do not get arrested. So it's decriminalizing right. people who possess the rather humans. than the drug itself. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, that's that's the one 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 of them. The other one is, as I've said before, a safe uh, for the um, federal government to work on uh, creating a situation where where we can have a safe regulated supply of particularly for opioids for people who need them. And there would be a system in place. And it's it's a big it's a big move. And that's it why is, yeah. part, it's also politically not um, not a popular. Thing right now, so when we have we've talked to to our uh, Health Canada minister ministers over the past few years, we've talked to the Prime Minister, and they're not quite ready to do this. They say, right. and then we say back, well, how many people have to die before exactly. you decide to make that make that happen? Um, and we don't have an answer. But a, that's a politician we a, a politician continue. needs to put their career on the line to do what's right. Is they really do. What happens? Yeah. Absolutely, and it it's, it takes courage. I understand their hesitance, um, but when, <laughs> by my count, and this is you know, and I I've used statistics, but since my son died in 2014, over 10,000 people have died in Canada from from drug overdose or drug poisoning. There, there is nothing else in the history of this country that has killed so many people that has not been attended to properly. So that's stigma. That's you know political um, cowardice. I sort of that's a bit of a strong word, but not a lack of political will and courage um, to do the right thing. Uh, it's it's pretty crazy when you think about that many people in our in our country dying because of lack of of uh, doing the right thing. Yeah, exactly. So where can um, people go to find more information about Mom Stop the Harm? Mm -hmm. um, we have a website called mumsstoptheharm.com, um, and it's easily accessible. We have a lot of information. Uh, also, on Facebook, we have a public page, Mom Stop the Harm, and we uh, probably post about five or six or maybe more articles a day that come from different news sources so that people can keep up on what's going on um, in their communities or yeah. um, with the government and you know just different ways of of looking at the problem so I would suggest both of those both of those places if there are people listening to this podcast who have lost someone or who have someone in active addiction I would encourage them to join us and there's a join button on our website uh, just for support and information and, and possibly they might, might want to be advocates themselves um, so we we would be we would welcome them. And so when they click the join page, do they, would they get access to the private um, support as well? The, the yeah, if what we, we're, we're very, very careful about who we um, accept as right. a person to join because we, we keep it safe. Right. Uh, we keep our, our members to those who have been impacted by drug harms, and we make sure that um, they know 
what our what our um, parameters are. Um, so safety is a big, big issue, but um, we're also really welcoming well, welcoming of people who have gone through this and. So it's not it's not a scary process. We just have a small sort of form that we ask people to fill out on the join button, and and uh, yeah, and then they have access to the to the closed and private Facebook pages for for support. That's great. I can I think that's my favorite thing about social media. I I can attest with firsthand that uh, closed Facebook groups. I parent a child with FASD, and that can be very challenging at times. So I'm my both my wife and I are part of this massive massive uh, closed Facebook group for, for people that are parenting a child with FASD. And even mm -hmm. if I'm, I'm going through a hard time or a stressful time, I can just open up the news feed and sometimes I'll just click on it and I just see post after post of people dealing, all over the world, people dealing with the same thing that I am and you just get that sense of relief. Even if you're not contributing or anything, just seeing it there gives you, That's gives right. you some sort yeah. of relief. And, and I, I'm, I award you guys for, for figuring that out and, and, uh, and I hope any of our listeners take take the advantage of and that invite to go and check that out because um, yeah I, I agree totally and I'm really glad to hear about your group I have a, a nephew who has autism and and there's a, a group that his parents and I actually belong to as well and there's nothing quite as um, comforting as to hear the stories of others knowing mm -hmm. that you're not alone exactly. um, and having the response if you get to just blurt out your situation at the moment and have you know compassionate response it's it, yeah and you know with with mom stop the harm we have um it's sort of a really a uh, again a sort of serendipitous thing where social media and our organization sort of all grew up at the same time well i guess certainly facebook was before our organization <laughs> but you know w where it's just been a free and accessible and really, really valuable and full uh, platform. Right. Great. Yeah. Well, thank, th thanks a lot for coming on, on the show today, Leslie. Uh, I'm really sorry for the loss that, that your family had to go through to get here. Uh, but I, I really appreciate the work you're doing in our country. And like I've heard you say before, people want to listen to their moms. So I think your group's very powerful and, and you can make some, some considerable change in our communities. Well, I sure hope so, and I really appreciate you inviting me on. Okay, take care. Thank you. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Say No KNOW.org podcast. Please head over to your social media pages and follow us. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Twitter handle is at SayNoOrg. Also, check out our website, www.SayNoKNOW.org. And most importantly of all, please hit the subscribe button on wherever you're listening to this podcast and tell all your friends and family because we need all the support we can get. We're in this together. We're trying to make some positive changes in our community. And as far as we know, education, sharing stories is definitely the best way to do that. So catch you next time.